All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another Learning Tech Talks, where we are living at the landscape of business technology and the human experience. I'm looking forward to today's conversation. We're going to be talking about personalization in the AI world and what that looks like when it comes to pulling together a technology ecosystem, as well as a few other fun things. I'm looking forward to it. So I am joined by Helen Marshall from Thrive, and she's going to be navigating this conversation with me. And it is the end of the day for you, Helen. So for those who aren't aware, where are you located right now? So I'm near Derby in uh, the United Kingdom, and I'm going. I'm going to give you a warning straight up now. It is the summer holidays. The kids are downstairs in the background, so you know anything there can happen. I never accept apologies for personal interruptions, whether it's on my live stream or my meetings or anything, because as a father of seven, it would be hypocritical of me to tell anyone it's rude to interrupt things for personal reasons. So don't worry about it at all. There's, you know, background noise. They come busting through the door. I'll welcome it. We'll bring them on stage. They can, they can join the conversation. Oh, don't encourage them. They don't need encouraging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we'll talk about that from the AI personalization standpoint. But for those who may not be familiar with you, so you're the CLO at Thrive, but you are very active in the industry. So little background into you and your journey into the space. Sure. Yeah. So as you say, my my role is uh, chief learning officer at Thrive, which is quite a unique role, I think, um, from the vendor side, at least within the industry. So what that means uh, from a business perspective is that I almost act as a bit of a, a, a golden thread of what best practice looks like for us um, okay. as a product in the industry and voicing that to um, external audiences. So our customers and then the wider L&D industry. So I, I, I would summarize my role as, uh, I, I guess, Because yeah, chief learning officer in the tech space, but at least on the vendor side, it's a unique role Mm because you have just as much kind of almost public presence responsibility as you do kind of that learning best practice and expertise. Yeah, absolutely. So I think when when it's more of an internal role um, leading the learning strategies for businesses is where we normally see that role sit within uh, the customers that we we certainly work with. And from a vendor perspective, I think well, Thrive always like to do things a little bit differently. So bringing someone in from that kind of <laughs> thought leadership position to to share that knowledge with the um, with wider audiences, but also to leverage that for our customers to say, look, we know what's going on in the industry, and this is this is why we do things in a certain way, and this is how you can benefit from doing X Y Z. So it really works um, uh, well from that perspective, but. From outside of, of um, my direct role, I also um, set up a group called Women In, which uh, brings together women from across the L&D space um, and HR and, and probably f- further afield once we um, continue to grow. And the idea there is that really we wanted to build um, a community to bring people together. We were definitely hearing from various different sources across um, across L&D that there was this distinct lack of a safe space for women to get together and share mainly best practice, seek advice, gain support. Okay. Um, so yeah, set that up. And is um, it specific to learning and development? I mean, obviously that may be the category of folks who are, are kicking around in there, but is that the topics that you're discussing or is it really more just the safe space to talk about careers, things like that? Yeah, good question. Because I think all of really the above, a, I guess. Yeah, mixture, mixture of all of that, really. Um, we're, what we're seeing is a lot of people um, who work in very small L&D teams or as um, solopreneurs coming to the group to, to seek advice, to bounce ideas off each other and to ask for um, advice about wider programs or facilitation techniques or really practical kind of key takeaway actions. But then conversely talking about, well, I'm, I'm going to apply for this job how do you think I should approach this? Or is it right based on my skill set? Can we mentor each other? Can we coach each other? Um, so that the, the biggest thing for me is when people meet on the group and then go somewhere else and talk and talk and build those connections and keep the community community growing in that way. Um, and that's happened, you know, and continues to happen um, as well. Now, so, how long, out of curiosity, how long ago did you start that? So kick that off. I've been thinking about it probably this time last year. Um, and really thinking, you know, I'm hearing these noises from people. I'm having various conversations with people um, and there's a commonality in the conversations I'm having. So I thought I want to do something about this, but I'm 
uh, I suppose my own worst enemy in that when I when I think about an idea, I, I start to want to do do it perfectly first time. So I'm like, right, what can I do and how do I build it and what does it need to look like and what's it going to look like a year down the line? And then so it got to Christmas and I still hadn't done anything about it because I didn't. I finally just, just caught yeah. in it in action. So, yeah, Christmas time, I thought that's it. I'm just going to start a WhatsApp group. And it just snowballed from there. So now we have about 500 members. Um, we've got our own platform that's powered by Thrive. Um, and we're starting to do kind of more local meetups. We have monthly events um, and it's always growing. I think the thing is, the thing I've learned about running a community is that you, no, one, no one really knows what they're doing when they're running a community. And it's really based off the feedback no. of people in it that you know makes it work. You know, it's funny you talk about that because, and the reason I wanted to dive into it a little bit was, that sense of belonging that people need, it existed long before the pandemic, but I feel like these past few years, especially this need to be able to connect with folks and figure, and like you said, knowing what that looks like, like anybody who's like, I know exactly how to run a community. It's like, uh, I don't know that anybody really knows exactly how to do it because you're figuring it out as you go. And that's one of the beauty and challenges of a community is, it's organic in the way it grows and changes and what's important to people. And if you can't flex okay. with that, if you're very like, this is exactly how it is. I mean, you can, but it loses, I think some of its stickiness when you yeah. treat it that way. And I'm very conscious that I'm just, what well, I'm just one person that notices these commonalities and conversations. What, what actually the community needs to serve the community. So, um, we're basing the development now on direct feedback from from what people okay. are saying they need and they and they want and it's been very um i guess humbling to be part of of the community itself and to see it grow and to to hear yeah. the positive noise that comes out of it well and it's funny i um so when i started the learning sharks community it was a similar type thing where I just had so many one-off. So my vision behind it was I just had all these one-off messages where people would reach out and ask me a question. And I would see these patterns of, I'm getting the same question from 15 different people. Obviously there's a need for people to understand this stuff, but I only have so much capacity to try and support everybody individually. And so mine originally started as a Slack channel where mm -hmm. again, it was just a place to democratize knowledge, bring people together and say, Hey, how can we support each other? Because L and D can be a very lonely place. And you talked about it. There's a lot of folks who maybe don't sit in part of a large centralized organization, or they're the one man or woman band out kind of taking care of things. And it's, it can be very lonely and difficult mm -hmm. in an industry where <laughs> everybody thinks, all your stakeholders think they know what you do and they think they know better than you do. And you're trying to figure out like, man, how do I navigate this? And it can be very lonely. Yeah. And I think also that people that are maybe even part of larger organizations gets that there's, there's a tendency to think very um, in a very insular way about what yes. L&D looks like for that business. And it then becomes... Um, it, even more imperative to look beyond the the bubble of your organization to, to to figure out what's going on in the in the wider community and be part of that wider community and that's why I think things like LinkedIn are so useful um, to, to to keep people connected but also to have that awareness of what's going on and um, and keep up to date with you know the latest trends but the other thing I would say about community is that we're hearing quite often from a customer perspective how important communities are when when they're actually delivering learning now um and yes. so I, I think that's i don't i don't want to say it's a buzzword because i feel like community has always been a, an effective way to learn and people learn through communities in, in a yeah. very social way but actually we're, we're seeing so I'll, I'll give you an example of um from a thrive perspective uh, one of the products we offer is um content club and as part of that um we're developing some leadership content and uh, we did a focus group with senior leaders from various different customers. And the, the, the overwhelming response was, we actually want a community to share ideas about what good leadership looks like. 
from organizations outside their own to make sure that they're doing the correct things and applying it in the way that their organization needs to. But really community was the thing that came out of that. And we're hearing it kind of left, right and center from yeah. in, diff in different situations. So I think it's becoming, and again, maybe that's as a result of the pandemic, putting it into focus in more detail, but it's important. No, you know, I mean, as for as far back as I can go, that has always been a thing, right? It may not had that term. I think that's the thing. That term became a bit of a buzzword. Come, mm -hmm. come COVID, you know, community was every, everybody was starting a community. Everybody had a new community. This had a community that had a community and it kind of lost. It became so ubiquitous, kind of became like, people didn't really even know what that was. But to your point, people have always wanted that connection to others with similar interests things like that, where they want to grow and develop together. And they want to invite folks from different perspectives and different angles to come work through that together. And it's a really important part of learning. I think it's mm -hmm. really important part of just our existence, but I think in learning, especially this is where you go from, well, I have these ideas in my head to, well, but how do I pressure test these? And who else has learned from these and who else has walked this path and what things worked for them and what things didn't. And there's a deep desire for people to have that and to have that sense of belonging in mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's that, that um, storytelling piece as well of that, the experience that people can bring to the table and the application in different situations of, of information that might be relevant to one individual, but bringing it into a different situation and framing it in a different way um, it's just really useful. And I, and I think that, yeah, just the, the storytelling piece is, is powerful. We, we hear about it all the time from a learning design perspective in the in content creation, make sure you're telling the right stories, but it's probably actually quite challenging to do that with um, with text-based content, um, which I guess sounds counterintuitive when we're thinking about actually writing stories, but from a, you know, bringing people along on a journey, how do you do that? How do you bring it to life? And it's that kind of experience angle. I think that's, that's, um, well, but I think itself. to your point, but it doesn't necessarily, and this is where sometimes when I look at some of these things, we tend to approach them from a very binary perspective of like, well, is text good or bad or is, you know, community good or bad. And it's like, well, it's just, yeah, you like they're, they're both needed. You know, I think of how old are book clubs? I mean, really, when you think about a book club, what was a book club? It was a community. You, you got mm -hmm. together, you read a book and it was text-based, but then you came together in community and you discussed it and you brought that together and you brought these ideas because going back to, and this, if you think this is a sidebar, it's actually not because this all ties back to personalization mm -hmm. because what you're really doing through community is personalizing things in ways that you couldn't without the community. You know, a mm. book is one thing, but everybody reads it through a different lens, different things stand out, different components really resonate with one person, not someone else. And the way you bring those things to light and actually spread it is in community. Yeah. And everyone, and I think this is, you know, as I, as I do more events and I create more events and bring people together in different ways, what I'm noticing and I suppose maybe just haven't paid attention to enough in the past is how different everyone's experience of a particular thing is going to be. So yes, you're all focused on a central idea and, and you're, you're being brought together for a particular reason, but, but being creating a space like the women in community on WhatsApp gives you that ability to collect all that information and feedback based on an event and see well actually that person took this away from that and this person took that away from it. it's a very practical way of understanding putting yourselves in the in the shoes of, of a learner in that in that perspective so thinking how is how is an individual going to be approaching um whatever it is that you're creating whatever it is that you're rolling out um we have an expectation i think um certainly from a learning design perspective uh, that's maybe maybe we've fallen down on, on in the past that uh, people are going to take away exactly what you want them to from a situation which is just very difficult to uh, put a I, I guess ring fence and say we know for sure someone's going to do this because people <laughs> you know it's just impossible to know what someone's going to do or, or how someone's going to react or, yeah. or how someone's even going to interpret based on their own 
um, situation, their own environment, what you've created. And that is something I, you know, it, we, we just need to pay more attention to, I think. And that's that comes back to the, the fundamentals of how people learn and, and yes. how we set people up to learn effectively at the end of the day. Well, and I think in many regards, this is where digital learning, I use those in air quotes, got a really bad rap because what happened was we stripped out the community from learning mm -hmm. and we completely sanitized a lot of learning from community. And so going back to it, I mean, you, it doesn't matter how great your objectives are, write them all you want to be able to say, here's what I'm hoping you walk away from this experience from no matter how well crafted that experience absent community, you have no way of actually guaranteeing that someone's experience based on even their attitude that day, something is going to jump out to them based on I had a rough morning or I had an argument with my spouse or something like, like is just going to shape the way they go through that experience in that moment. And when you lack the community to actually give people an opportunity to engage and participate with other people, you're actually robbing them of a lot of things. And I think that's where you see, you know, post pandemic, you see some of these kind of like drive back to in person, which isn't necessarily bad, but mm -hmm. I think it's almost an overcorrection of recognizing what really was missing that wasn't included. Yeah. You know, what's been interesting recently is I've noticed with a couple of customers that, that I've spoken to, um, that there's almost a hesitancy to mention in-person training. It's almost like, oh, we're, we're still doing that or oh, we're thinking about doing it. And, and actually, that, I mean, that's it's great thinking about that ble like blended approach that like you mentioned earlier and, and how that how you create an experience for someone. It just matters that you're delivering it in the right way at the right time. It doesn't really matter what format that takes. But it's really interesting that kind of shift from, oh, everything needs to be digital. Let's get everything online without really thinking about the experience that you're creating for people. Um, and then the, the the fallout of that is people now saying, oh, I'm not really sure that I should be mentioning in-person training. I, I feel like everything should be digital, but but it just doesn't- Right, like it's 2023, that's not socially acceptable to say that we're doing any of that anymore. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's why it's so important that platforms have that kind of social learning element as a key focus. Um, because it, that that is the creating that community essentially is that understanding of what what good knowledge is looking like within a business and how people how often people are sharing that that kind of those kind of engagement um, stats I suppose which are which are often seen as vanity metrics but but they're really fundamental to understanding like for example the way that we use social media and understand how to choose a video of um i don't know how to put up a shelf on youtube based on the amount of likes or comments that are, that are on the video the same way that learning platforms can leverage that social reinforcement um and and then identify and this is where i think it goes a step further than just those vanity metrics identifying individuals within your business who are able to then become a subject matter expert or are subject matter experts and they become that influence and champion of knowledge within your business and I think that's where I really see the benefit of platforms well obviously like Thrive that, that have that element in there um, yeah. and who can continue to to identify good good strong content based on the reactions of others within the community um, and the other side of that is the production of content as well so um, you know uh, it, it, it's really empowering for individuals to be given the opportunity to share whatever it is they have, whether that's a skill related to their job or something that they've observed in others and they want to share and, and pass on knowledge to other people. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that extending community in that way in a digital environment, I think is something that, that, that is really positive. Um, but as, as we said, it doesn't always need to rely on digital content to fulfill no. whatever it is that you're trying to do. And I think it's, creating a space where you can think about that wider experience, both on and offline. Well, and what you're talking about, I think, you know, whether you're talking about learning experiences and the components of that, or, um, you know, the metrics that you may look at to, you know, measure effectiveness in this, they're all, I mean, we're talking about storytelling, but all stories have different components. And it's not that some components are more important 
than other components. Like, oh, your plot is more important than your characters. Like, well, what? No, no, you have to have a good plot and you have to have good characters. You don't pick one and then get rid of the rest. You have to actually figure out how these things fit together in concert to ultimately mm -hmm. create something meaningful. And I think that's true, whether you're talking about the way you structure a learning experience and say, what are we really trying to do here? And what are the components that we need? One of the most frustrating things I'll run into every once in a while is when I'll be in a situation where a decision has been made that something needs to be done digitally or in person, either way. But that decision has been made absent the what are we really trying to do here? And what is the best way to construct that experience mm -hmm. rather that, you know, we're deciding based on what box we think it needs to fit into rather than saying, what are we trying to do? And then let's build a box around that, which again, like I said, some of this stuff may sound like we're on a bit of a rabbit trail, but really this all ties back to what is personalization? Cause that mm -hmm. word gets thrown around all the time. We need to personalize personalize. If you don't understand what you mean when you say personalize, how can you possibly accomplish that? Yeah, I think it's, and that's the something that you, well, I've certainly seen um, regularly associated with AI as well, um, in that I think it's an easy way for people to suggest that they're using AI on their platforms to personalize a learning experience when actually the technology that's being used to um, surface content to an individual is not necessarily using AI, it just look, might look like it is. Um, and so, I, I mean, I, let's take um, learning technologies, and I, I know we spoke about this before we, we went live. Yeah. Um, the the my experience of being there in May was that a lot of learning vendors were kind of jumping on this AI bandwagon. Obviously, ChatGPT really took took the world by storm, and a <laughs> hundred million users in a week. It has that kind of effect. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And and so, you know, all of a sudden we're seeing all these experts pop up and all these platforms are suddenly saying, we actually you know what we use AI. We just forgot to tell you about it. Um, and now, you know, we're in the moment where we can share it with you and we can attract people to our to our stand. So that's what we're doing. And I, I think I counted um, all of the different um uh, uh seminars that were going on across the exhibition floor and including the conference although i think there's definitely more of a place for ai in the conference because it's more obviously geared towards that thought leadership piece um arguably that's my opinion um on the seminar floor on the exhibition floor we were seeing that maybe 20 percent of all of the seminar titles had ai in the title um, which was actually... funny on the practitioner side because I'm in a lot of circles with folks who, you know, they're, they're coming from the practitioner side. And I remember when that event happened, I was in a number of conversations post and just, you know, asked people what they thought and what their experience was. And the feedback was very similar. Mm -hmm. AI was so ubiquitous. It was impossible to just, it's like, that's the only thing people were talking about. But the interesting thing, listening to people talk about it was they said the word was thrown around a lot but it wasn't really used in any sort of meaningful way. Mm -hmm. It was just yeah. stated as though everyone knows what we're talking about. And there wasn't even a real confidence that are the people saying the words, even confident in what they're talking about when they're saying it. And that was yeah. kind of the impression everybody left just going, I know less about artificial intelligence having left that event than I did going into it because I'm like, I don't even know what's going on anymore. It's just, everything is being tagged as AI and I, I don't even know yeah, what people mean. That's the, I mean, that's the feeling everyone has when they leave learning technologies, right? I don't know what's going on anymore. You're baffled by the sensory <laughs> overload of being in that space. Everything I thought I knew about the world yeah. is different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like I, I definitely felt that. Um, and what was really interesting, I think from a Thrive perspective is that it really gave us the chance to think and be considerate about how we're going to be approaching this as a business and rather than jumping on the bandwagon with everyone else immediately we actually just stopped to consider we thought you know what what are people going to be saying uh, about their products is it going to be true what are some of the interesting things that we can see other people doing that we think have got got kind of legs to stand on and that, I feel like that's kind of setting us apart a little bit in the vendor space because I feel like we're being more considerate about how we need to approach this and what the implications really are 
from a from an administrator's perspective using our platform but then from the learner perspective is ultimately what we're trying to do is is make people's lives easier to allow them to learn more yeah. effectively and to to upskill and to access information when they need it um so taking that step back was was very useful i think in order to allow us the time to formulate that plan and to think about what it is that we need to do but you know what i feel like it was also quite scary in the because AI and the, the talk around it is moving so rapidly, so fast, it was quite scary to be that considerate about something that's that's happening so quickly. And even a couple of months, which usually is nothing, it's it is which is usually a long <laughs> period of like time. Like consider, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's it's that kind of what's happened. Like so much more has happened in the past since March, since ChatGPT was started. Like I guess being embedded more. Um, commonly in people's everyday lives. Um, oh yeah, I, I, I mean, you see, you see it literally everywhere now. Which um, Shilpa asked this early on in the conversation. This will kind of tie to where we're going with it. You know, the question about where, whether it's OpenAI or some of these other tools out there that are looking at this stuff. I somebody asked a question on a post I had yesterday about this, and my response back is. I think the limit to what the possibilities are, are our imagination. I don't think we've even started to scratch the surface on the possible use cases of this. And that's where I get disappointed sometimes where I see what we're doing with it. Cause I'm like, that's like, that's how far you're stretching your imagination. But I think to your point, there is this pressure right now, not only just on vendors, but I think on practitioners, I think on a lot of people where it's just like, well, everybody's doing it. So I got to figure out how to do something with it. And mm -hmm. then that action bias kicks in to just go, well, let me just grab the first thing that comes to mind, or let me just glom onto something so that I can say I'm part of the, and again, it's funny, this ties back to our sense of belonging that we were talking about with community, where there's this mm -hmm. feeling of like, well, I want to fit in. I want to be part of the crowd that everybody's talking about AI. How do I belong? with this group of people. So I, I guess I'll just grab something and that can be one of the biggest mistakes you can make. And I think, and I caution a lot of people right now, be very careful how quickly you're rushing in to throw AI at something just because you can, or someone yeah. else did, or someone else said they are. And I think the, 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 I'd always encourage a, a culture of experimentation. So seeing how something, yes. how something works and and then changing, you know, if, if it if it if it's working, great. But I think the way that people are using so I'm gonna use generative AI as an example because that's how people are most commonly using um AI in their daily lives at the moment. And I guess there's that kind of overlay of um uh, chat GPT and that, that you can use it as a knowledge base and input information and, and search for it based on the parameters in which you set and that's kind of an immediate use but like you say that's it's not necessarily stretching we're not stretching our imag imaginations to think about that because it's it's a, a use that we already have within um, our uh, daily lives that we, we've seen quite yep. an immediate solution or fix for the thing that I really struggle with is I was actually having a chat with um, someone earlier around this is that it's a little bit like space in that you you cannot physically fathom the possibilities <laughs> of the impact that it's going to have on on our daily lives. Um, and the real I, I know that I don't have the brain to think so innovatively about this technology that it's going to revolutionize the way that we do something. I just know I don't have that capability in me. It's to, it's going to be the real geni geniuses in the world that really have that out of the box thinking or the people that just are, are used to thinking in such a creative way. And that's, that's as equally as exciting as it is scary. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of, uh, so to, to um, the question that you just had on screen, how is it affecting the learning industry? I think it's, it's there's a couple of ways to respond to this and I think there's from the practical tool perspective of how our uh, uh, learning how is the learning industry ad adopting the tools that we currently have available how is it utilizing technology that already has AI embedded in a, and adopting and therefore ad adapting the technology based on its understanding of what's available and what the parameters could be but then from a skills perspective I'm definitely seeing the L&D teams don't necessarily have the, a thorough understanding of what AI is. This goes back to obviously our conversation around what learning technologies taught us and what, or what it didn't yeah. teach us. 
Um, and how is that how is that lack of understanding going to impact the decisions that we make about what we definitely need within an organization or what we don't need? Um, and I saw a post earlier um, by by Craig Weiss, who obviously an industry analyst, about his service that he's offering to go into organizations and talk about AI. What do you need from AI? What what products do you need? How can you um, formulate a, an AI strategy? And that is really worrying to me from, um, again, from that community aspect of um, uh, the industry of L&D is that this type of, if someone does have that knowledge and that capability to guide people's thoughts and decision-making, surely that information should be freely offered to a wider community in order to upskill as many people as fastly as, as fast as possible in a yeah. time when we just don't have the resource or, or time to um, to commit to upskilling rapidly, then putting a barrier in place and saying, actually, you need to pay to access this knowledge and this information is going to have a serious detrimental effect on the skills of the L&D community. And that, to me, is really worrying. So I'd, I would say that people, and I see posit people doing this in a really positive way across the industry are um, people like Ross Stevenson, who puts up little um, videos of, here's how to use chat GPT to, to do this, or this is how you, you could, excuse me, you could use something. And that is enabling L&D teams to think, actually, I'm going to take that information and I'm going to utilize it in my job. Um, and yep. And that sort of information is just, it's invaluable at the moment to L&D teams that are under pressure, that are under resource, that don't just don't have the budget to bring in an, an outside um, resource. Right. To, to have that well, and I think the unfortunate part with this is um, another unfortunate part, going back to your point about the need to democratize and help raise the tide for the whole community is, you know, the scarcity mindset can creep in and folks can go, but if if I do that, then there won't be enough. And the thing is the pace at which this is moving. I mean, if you've listened to me talk about artificial intelligence two weeks ago, I can tell you right now, it's changed in those two weeks and the way I'm seeing new things and some of the projects I'm involved in and conversations I'm having and how advanced the technology is just changing. It's moving that quick. And so the idea that anybody's going to be able to keep up. We actually almost a requirement of our industry being able to keep pace of any hope of keeping pace is actually to democratize that, um, mm. you know, mm. for us to be effective because it is moving faster than I think most people even realize. Like you said, you go to learning technologies. That was however many months ago, probably most of what was shared there is like, yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, it's, it's that pace of change, which, I mean, we all know that L&D has historically been very slow to change and is still very slow to change and to adapt in, in many ways. Um, and so the, the pace, it, I think one positive spin on this is that because of that, how, how rapidly AI has come about, how it's challenging us to think differently about um, the way that we do things, the products that we might create, the ways that we might um, design, um, it's, it's actually encouraging us to think faster about other elements of what we do um which i think can can be a positive but i would al also caution that just because you can think quickly and do something doesn't mean you should necessarily do it right um, there's always that kind of step back of why are we doing something who are we doing it for um what are the outcomes that we're looking to achieve um and without kind of just jumping on a bandwagon and saying Look at us, we've got AI. The one thing actually I think that is interesting is we're seeing in a lot of the um, RFPs that we're receiving from customers, queries around what do, what do you do with your product with AI? Um, and there's no kind of um, reasoning to that. It's yeah. just what, you know, what it's is- just what a new, It's a new box. AI? It's a new box on the RFP checklist. Yeah. And if you then dig into that conversation with people, you know, that- maybe the answer is that they need something specific but more often than not I think it's just a a, a test of the um the forward-thinking nature of your company rather than a practical application of the moment there and then of what they actually need um so there's a different I think there's a different way to frame that um uh but yeah it's really interesting that uh that that should appear um I think it says a lot I think about yeah it's well and 
two two things. You know, one, I think going back to something you said a little bit earlier that ties to Shilpa's question and those, you know, who are out there. I mean, I highly encourage, in fact, my own teams and the folks that I talk to regularly, I'm like, definitely be experimenting with things, mm -hmm. you know, be trying things out and experimenting with the possibilities. Cause even if something is a little bit clunky today, an update might come out next week that radically changes some of that stuff. And that can feel really overwhelming, but I think it goes back to thinking about it with an experimental mindset and going, listen, now is not the time to go head first into the deep end and go, okay, everything we do is now going to be built on XYZ tool. Mm -hmm. Because in this stage right now, XYZ tool may look wildly different next month than it does right now. And it's not necessarily the time to double down on some of this stuff while at the same time, recognizing it's important to continue experimenting with that stuff. But I think to your point on the RFP, and I think this is something to the practitioners who listen and watch this, your point about the AI now becoming a checkbox on an RFP rather than part of the dialogue of, so how do you, you know, does AI enhance this capability? You're talking about a separate capability and mm -hmm. then the possibility of where AI may enhance that for scale, speed, you know, other things like that. I think the risk of that is it's putting additional artificial pressure on vendors to have to commit the crime that we're saying is actually causing problems. Cause it's like, well, now we have to say our thing has AI because if we don't, then we get rejected in an RFP simply because of some arbitrary checkbox that goes, well, this company doesn't have AI. They said, you know, it's a vicious circle because there I, I feel like it's that lack of knowledge and understanding of what AI actually is and where it should fall within your product discussions, like you're saying. Um, and then, and then, obviously, as you say, rightly say that the react the reaction to that is us saying, "Oh no, we actually need to do something about this because we're getting requests for it." Um, but actually, are those requests coming from the right place? And then, you know, who's in the, who's in the wrong then, um, or who's in the right? Um, so yeah, really interesting uh, development, I think. But um, it, it comes back to, I, I think, then the onus falls on us as vendors to ask the right questions to identify whether we are then a right fit for that company based on the questions that they're asking because ultimately what we don't want to do as a vendor is partner with someone who isn't going to be a great fit and is it has different expectations than our product delivers because it's just going to be a bad experience for everybody so ultimately we need yeah. to be digging into really digging into that ask and saying well, why is it that you're asking that and that again that comes back to you building reputation and building trust with people that um, if you're not asking those questions, if you're not building that relationship during the RFP process and during the sales process, then, um, you know, it, it doesn't stand you in good stead for an implementation if you're not um, uh, get, being given the right information at the right time or, or asking the right questions. And I think that's something that Thrive just do so well is that um, un really digging into and understanding the needs of the customers that come to us asking for certain things and being able to qualify out leads and say, actually, you, you should go um, to, to go, go and speak to someone else because they're probably a better yeah. fit for you. And we actually take pride in those situations of saying, actually, you know, go and go and look at, at one of our competitors because they're going to be better suited. Better fit. Um, yeah. Well, and kudos to, you know, and again, not to knock on folks who have jumped on the AI bandwagon in the sense that I, th I have seen and I'm very familiar with, <laughs> as you can imagine, I talk to a lot of vendors. <laughs> And there are some that have legitimately the opportunity to merge artificial intelligence with what they were doing. Mm -hmm. It was perfect. And what happened with OpenAI and GPT-4 was such a perfect inflection of like, holy cow, we've been waiting to be able to do this. And it truly now enables that. There are plenty of those out there that I'm mm -hmm. like, man, they, they nailed it. You know, it was like the folks who did jumped on the virtual like remote work thing right when the pandemic hit. And they didn't realize it, but it was like, boom, it happened to propel their thing. Mm. But kudos to you for, you know, and Thrive, really, the leadership there for recognizing for us, the right decision is to be more thoughtful and intentional about what we do with it. Because mm. I think that that's props for doing that, because I think there was a lot and still is a lot of artificial pressure 
that if you want to be in the cool kids club, you got to say you're the AI, you got the AI wizard type thing. And I think being willing to say, we will, it's not that we're saying we don't see the value or the importance. That's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is we want to be thoughtful and intentional about how and where we use it to create a better product, mm-hmm. not simply to check a box on an RFP. Exactly, exactly that. And I think that what's really exciting for us now as a business is seeing those ideas starting to come to fruition and thinking about, well, we've had this practical a time period of analysis of this is what we think we we should be doing and this is what we we're seeing in the industry and we, we think we're on the right lines now we um, we well we will stand by that but it's at that exciting <laughs> time of um the, you know seeing it come to life now so yeah I, I guess watch this space for whatever's next if you're interested yeah. in that element of our platform okay well I t- I told you we w- I wouldn't push too hard on that area <laughs> but I am curious. Because the other thing that Thrive, and this is transitioning a little bit on some of the journey of Thrive, because you've been a company that's played, and honestly, the L&D landscape has been a bit tumultuous for a while now. You know, the the three-letter acronym, LRS, LXP, LMS, like that whole thing and where things were going. I'm curious how you've seen that space adapt and change because- I still remember when LXP was a non-existent acronym and nobody knew what the heck that was. Mm-hmm. And now it's almost become so integrated into so many things. You know, I'm curious on the vendor side, what that journey has looked like. Yeah, I think it's it, it's an interesting one. The the idea of acronyms, because like like you say, at one point there were just acronyms left, right and center. Um, and it, and it's yeah. hard to know. It's hard as a, as a practitioner to know what it is that I definitely should be looking for. Um, and the, the thing is that it, it once you get under the definition of LMS or LXP, you're, you're then um, able to just identify what it is that you're actually trying to do on a practical level. And so someone who's asking for an LMS might actually be better suited to um, an LXP or vice versa. Um, but well, still- and for a bit, for a bit, it kind of was the AI conversation where you weren't in the cool kids club unless you could say you were an LXP too. So then everybody was throwing, we're an LXP on top of it. And it was like, what, well, what do you mean when you say well, learning experience? Like, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that Thrive really coined the term LXP and we started off that, uh, that bandwagon for people. <laughs> Um, because, you know, we, we wanted, we, I guess we, we see ourselves as the cool kids. We've been the disruptors. We've been, um, suggesting that there's a different way of approaching learning and that the idea of an LXP then is that experiential point of view and that you're thinking about how people immediately access a platform and are in, are um, kind of bought into whatever it is that you have in front of them. And the, the, the journey through learning is guided in a very, um, social way, whereas the LMS elements are still there on our platform. You're still able to 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 do the tracking, to do the compliance, to do those more formal. Um, uh, yeah, it's the plumbing that, in your house. You have to yeah, have it. it. Has to be there. You have to yeah. have it. You yeah, can't get away from it. Stuff. Um, but then the, the the other side of that, and and the, where we're seeing the real benefit of our product is the crossover between yes, LMS and LXP, but also. Um, the platform being used from a skills development perspective, but also as a comms tool as well. So our USP is that people can come to us for that kind of all-in-one solution that, um, and, and also this this really ties into uh, working with, um, starting to work with SMEs who maybe are on, at the beginning of a journey of implementation and they might just want the LXP part of of whatever it is that we offer um and actually they then actually decide oh actually we can do comms as well through this platform and then maybe two years down the line we're going to look at us the skills development a year down the line whenever it's going to be um look at skills development for our people and businesses are able to grow with us um as a platform as a result of that so it i I think that bringing things together in one place is under one umbrella yeah has been really useful for a lot of customers um and it, and it's interesting to see um, other other um, vendors in the space either doing similar things or really sticking to their guns and saying, you know, we really are the LMS part of this, and we're going to really kind of play into that. Um, 
so yeah, it's it, it, it's an interesting time, I think, in the market, but one which requires us to be really mindful of how we're bridging that gap for a lot of people. Um, and that's all the way um, down from kind of the SMEs, yeah. as I mentioned, to enterprise level customers. Well, and it's interesting having watched the journey. I remember, um, I mean, I don't remember, you know, for a long time, everything kind of spun up and and there were, there was a ton of new stuff and there still is. I, like I said, I talked to a lot of different vendors uh, in early startup and things like that. And there's still a lot of new innovation coming into the space, but it is interesting to watch as some of the tech that was in that new kind of startup stuff is now being normalized into the broader ecosystem into kind of consolidation mode. Mm -hmm. And it is leaving, and this kind of ties back to this personalization conversation is how organizations are starting to pull things together from a user experience standpoint. Yeah. Because especially during the pandemic, there was this mass panic in many regards where people were buying whatever they could find to try and fill gaps. You know, we got this gap, we got to get a thing. We got this gap, we got to get a thing. And in some senses, it was what was needed. Organizations in some cases, just it was what you had to do. But now as that's becoming more of a state of, well, this is just the world we live in. Now there is this shift to start looking back at that and going, what kind of user experiences did we create when we did this? And in many cases, it was not a great user experience. It was a very clunky, discombobulated user experience, which I personally, my take is there's pros and cons to taking the all-in-one path. There's mm -hmm. pros and cons to taking... The I, we're going to have different things and then we're going to bring them together. They just bring different challenges. But I think many all of a sudden the pendulum swung to, we just got a whole bunch of stuff. And the time was not spent to actually say, how do we thread this all together into a seamless user experience? And it's the reckoning has come for many organizations. Yeah, and it, and it, but it kind of rings true with what we were just saying about AI, right? And that, you know, people didn't take the time to think about how everything pieces together. Um, and people haven't thought about how the implications of AI are going to pan out on whatever it is that they're developing. It's not quite the same. I don't think it's the same impact necessarily, but it's the same premise in that you need, really need to be thoughtful about how your tech's coming together. And I think in some situations, it's 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 very useful or right, but I'd say maybe in all situations it's useful for um, organizations to just really take stock of their tech stack and say, yeah. what, what do we have available? And, you know, we've, we've had cases of customers who've had, you know, in, in the um, double figures of LMSs or, or uh, LXPs, 33. Well, let's just say I worked for an organization and one of the projects that we led was consolidating from, over 20 mm -hmm. down to two was even just like what we were trying to do. And it was a massive exercise. Yeah. And I, I always wonder um, how you end up in a situation like that as an organization, rapid growth, different, you know, siloed departments. I, I've not been in an organization that worked in that way. I've worked with several who have functioned in that way, um, but, <laughs> but not been part of one. And it's, you know, I just feel how challenging it is as a, um, as an outsider looking in, um, how must it feel from an end user perspective or, or do that do people even realize because of how um, organizations um, are, are split maybe at group level um, you know that might that might it, you might not even notice that think things like this um, it's really interesting um, you know thinking about how an individual within an organization must see the tech that's available to them or not see it. Um, if they're not accessing the things that they need to. Well, and I think sometimes, you know, when you look at it from an organization standpoint, to your point, sometimes it's size, sometimes it's rapid growth. Sometimes it's honestly organizational politics. You mm -hmm. know, someone just wants to do what they want to do and they're more concerned about their agenda than they are the well-being and experience of the end employee. But this is where in some of these big, massive organizations, it can feel like you work for multiple different companies mm. working in the same company. And that, you know, as you look at some of the data around people's engagement and their overall satisfaction with work, you know, sometimes this stuff gets thrown around like, yeah, we want to improve the user experience. And it's, it's perceived as this squishy, 
nice to have pie in the sky, unicorns and sunshine type thing. But really, this actually contributes to business performance and the overall engagement and well-being of your employees, which is what companies are built on. And I think mm-hmm. going back to this, you know, we as a species have not done a great job learning from our mistakes <laughs> in many <laughs> regards. So we just went through this with the pandemic, like, wait, hey, let's just run at things. We'll figure it out later and are now starting to recognize, boy, we probably should clean this up. I think we run some of the same risks with AI as let's just run out and figure this out and we'll clean it up later. And it's a lot harder to fix things than it is to break them. Mm, and that, that the worrying thing for me there with, with AI is that just the, the data aspect of it. So what, you know, we're, we're running out and we're giving or accessing all this data or providing more data to, for, for um, to talk about chat, chat GPT in particular, giving it information that, you know, do, do we really know how it's being controlled or what's happening to it afterwards? I don't know. And and then I think the the thing then, the, the questions around kind of data ethics and you you know your response how are you treating information in in a in an ethical manner if you don't know the answer to that then that's you know it's a worrying place to be um but I don't think a lot of people do um people are still formulating that um but it's it's things that we we just really need to be thinking about um as you know L and D teams and in the industry um and yeah, it it does worry me um, that that aspect of it. Uh, but also the I think the monetization aspect of it again to come back to our previous point in that people are always going to try and make money quick buck off something, um, yep. and and really kind of without thinking about the ethical implications of whatever it is that they're doing. And I know that was um, something that Mogadat mentioned in his when he recorded his second podcast with Stephen Bartlett talking about the emergency of of AI. Um, yep. And the, the the fact that so many businesses are just making quick money off um, off AI without without understanding without giving thought to the longer term view of it, um, and really interesting actually right at the beginning you mentioned about um, when we're talking about community this idea of um, establishing human connection, and Mogadat in in that podcast said that the only thing that's going to remain in I don't know five ten. 20 years, I don't know how what the timescale was that he was talking about, but in the very near future, was going to be everything was going to be changed by AI. I've, I've, the fundamental way of living is going to be changed. Very scary, potentially very scary thoughts, but all that will remain is that and um, the the fundamental human need for human connection. And I thought that was really interesting because I mean I'm p- very passionate about human establishing and building human connection anyway, but hearing that there's this thought that there's that element is never going to disappear that it will never be replaced entirely through by ai um stephen bartlett's response was well you just build an artificial girlfriend <laughs> and that, that yeah was so i've listened to that conversation multiple times i did a response video to it on my youtube channel um because there was there was a lot to unpack with that and i actually mm. have one i'm releasing this thursday uh, Stephen Bartlett did another conversation with Sam Harris, mm-hmm. who is a neuroscientist and philosopher. And they had an interesting conversation, um, long form, two hours, and there's a lot to unpack in it. And I, I did a response to that because there was some really deep things that I think we do need to think about. And mm-hmm. it may sound very esoteric for an L&D person to have to think about this, but it's really not because when you think about what we do and the role we play in an organization, we have a huge influence over where this goes potentially. Absolutely. And going back to, you know, whether we, whether we want to talk about skills, whether we want to talk about, you know, what fulfillment at work looks like. Um, the one with Sam Harris, just is kind of a teaser on that. You know, he talks about at some point in the future, will we need to work anymore? And, and Steven's response back was, well, you know, people want to work for purpose and Sam's very, I think accurate responses, but who says purpose at work means having to survive, right? This whole Mm -hmm. survival, having to earn enough to be able to eat. And, and it's just a, there's a lot that we have to unpack with this, but I think underneath all of that is 
the importance of what really will remain is this whole human connection. And the thing that's interesting is that I still going back to kind of the just binary tendency we have towards things is I don't see artificial intelligence in competition with our humanity. Mm -hmm. It can be. And I think one of the biggest risks of artificial intelligence is that we use it to dehumanize people. And that is the absolute worst thing that we could ever do with it. Whenever mm -hmm. we, you look back at human history, whenever we dehumanize people with things, it doesn't go well. No. But I think there's capabilities of it that can bring out aspects of our humanity that have gone untapped. Yeah, for sure. We can we can leverage it to improve the human experience ultimately at the end of the day as L&D practitioners, as people working in the field. And that is what is so exciting about it. And that it, the, the thing that's scary about that is that people, uh, as, as I mentioned, who leverage AI in a way that is unethical, just really go against the, that moral principle there. Um, I think that just folk, allowing us to embrace technology to, um, yeah, to really enhance the human experience is really, I think, where it, where it's at at the end of the day. Well, and I think that's where, as learning professionals, we have an opportunity to. When I look at some of the things, you know, when we really talk about what personalization looks like, which is. And we joked about this backstage right now. A lot of what we see AI being used for personalization is like the equivalent. I think you said it. If you told your kids, I like yellow and then your kid, everything they do is, is colored yellow. They bring you pictures of yellow. Every birthday present you have is yellow because it took this one comment that you just happened to mention in passing. And it took that as, Oh, Helen loves yellow. Everything she loves must be yellow type of a thing. And mm -hmm. I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now when really the capability to use artificial intelligence to better understand where is someone right now? What are they doing? What do they actually need in this moment? What do they not need? How do I adapt based on what we talked about with the community piece? You might just be having a really bad day and something that yesterday would have knocked it out of the park for you mm -hmm. today may set you off and make you have a horrible day at work. And it's capability to move at the speed of recognizing that and being able to adapt to you. That's huge in terms of what it can do to bring out the best in you, to develop you in ways that you didn't even realize you needed developing. That's mm -hmm phenomenal when I look at the future, but it all goes back to how do we choose to use it? Mm. And I think there's a real, there's a real opportunity there to allow AI to instigate connection with um, information that we might not, we just hadn't necessarily thought about at that stage. I know um, Josh um, Burson's just re released his um, AI and HR report, which is a really interesting read. A lot of it was way over my head from a tech perspective, but there was a really interesting um, chapter around uh, AI and skills, um, and 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 he was talking there around um, AI being able to not only identify the skills that you have as an individual um, using terminology that you might not necessarily have recognised yourself, because skills terminology is really tricky to to, to pin down and to, to know. Most people don't mean. understand it. They yeah, really don't. I don't think anyone's really got that right. Um, and so AI, AI can be useful in that perspective, but then it's also connecting you with other skills that you, uncovering skills that you don't necessarily know that you have, but you actually do have. So providing terminology and connecting you to the skills that you, or making you aware of skills that you might not necessarily have known you had. Yep. And then there's, there's another layer of that is then connecting you with skills that you might want to develop in order to um to to head in this trajectory towards this goal um and that's really exciting stuff i think when we look at yes. ai and, and the opportunity for skills development specifically yeah it's it's ability or the potential at least potential because this is where there's uh -huh. a lot of checks being written right now <laughs> that i'm not confident people are going to be able to cash but it's potential to be able to give people language and eyes to see things and words to speak things that they didn't even realize they had is phenomenal. And that's a very bright future. It's a very yeah. bright future, but it's one that uh, yet remains to be unseen. So mm -hmm. anyway, <laughs> well, this was super fun. 
Alan, I really enjoyed this conversation. I know this was at the very end of your day after a very long day. So hopefully it was as engaging and um, energetic as you had set out. Set out. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And I'm just going to say, you know, for anyone thinking about that yellow piece and saying, you know, dropping into conversation with your parents or your children. Yeah, I, I like this and then getting it as presents for the rest of your your, your <laughs> life. <laughs> I'm just going to say I I like donuts. And if anyone wants to buy me donuts, there we go. <laughs> OK, not, OK. So there you go. So now you know that, you know, in a good way, one thing we can know about Helen, about her as a human is she loves donuts and that's not going to change. There's not gonna AI is not going to change that. No, <laughs> no, AI is not going to change that. that. I love it. What a great way to end. Well, thank you so much, Helen for joining me. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. Hopefully this makes you think deeper and go further with where you see the future of development and growth for the employees you serve ahead. So thanks so much, Helen. Thanks so much for having me.